Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare associated infections and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program and thank you for joining us on C. diff spores and more. We would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. Visit the Clorox Healthcare website, www.cloroxhealthcare.com, to learn more about keeping environments safer with Clorox Healthcare. Welcome to the Patient and Family C. diff Symposium. I'd like to first introduce myself. My name is Paul Feuerstadt, and I'm an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine and an attending physician at the Physicians Alliance of Connecticut Gastroenterology Center. I'm just so delighted and honored to be the host for today. I'd like to thank the foundation for offering me this, this really uh, wonderful opportunity. This symposium is designed to provide understandable information to patients and their families about C. difficile and its impact on all of us. Before we begin, I think it's important to provide a brief overview of the foundation. The C. Diff Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that was established in 2012 and comprised of 100% volunteering professionals that are dedicated at supporting public health through education and advocating for C. difficile infection prevention, treatment, clinical trials, environmental safety, and support worldwide. Nancy Corella is the foundress of this organization, and she works tirelessly to make so many wonderful things happen to help the CEDIF community. The annual conference each November is a highlight of the year for those of us who care for patients with C. difficile and for patients as it provides the opportunity for so many of all of us to get together and share data and our experiences with this infection. Previously in person, but this past year in 2020 adapting to the pandemic, we did this virtually as this conference is. In 2020, the foundation created and published an app for your smartphone entitled CDIF and You that is available in the Apple App Store and Google Android App Store as well. Nancy Corolla also hosts a weekly radio program called CDIF Scores and More. There have been over five seasons, or actually five completed seasons now, and 275 episodes on a variety of topics related to C. difficile and other gastrointestinal diseases as well. That's sponsored by Clorox Healthcare. The foundation also has a junior infection fighters program to engage the next generation as well as monthly opportunities to call and speak with experts in the CDF community through the community outreach program. As you can see, the foundation has a lot that it provides. Today's event would not have been possible without the generous support of Ceres Therapeutics. So we say a very big thank you to Ceres Therapeutics for their uh, honoraria and support of this educational session. Ceres has an exciting product that they will be sharing with you in the first lecture today. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. Barbara McCovern. Barbara is the Vice President of Medical Affairs, and she will be discussing treatment of recurrency difficile infection with SCR109, an investigational microbiome drug. Barbara? Thanks so much, Paul. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. I want to thank Nancy Corrala and the C. diff Foundation for inviting me to speak to you today. As a former infectious disease physician, I have personally witnessed the ravages of C. diff infection in outpatients and hospitalized patients alike. But today, I am happy to tell you about the progress we are making at Ceres Therapeutics to improve treatment for patients with this devastating infection. 
Do I advance these slides or? Yes. Use the control panel on the left. You'll see the little capsule on the left bottom. The arrow pointing down will advance your yes. slides. Thank you very much. Sure. The hallmark of C. disinfection or CDI is severe debilitating diarrhea, which is caused by the harmful toxins of this bacteria. Other symptoms include nausea, abdominal discomfort, low-grade fever, and poor appetite. A minority of patients go on to developing severe life-threatening complications, such as toxic megacolon, and may require surgical removal of their swollen, inflamed colon. As many of you know all too well, our current treatments for primary C. infection or CDI, are suboptimal, with up to 25% experiencing a recurrence within days of antibiotic completion. Once a patient has a recurrence, the risk that CDI will recur again continues to increase to 40% or greater. A top expert in the field, Dr. Mark Wilcox, calls this the C. diff escalator of recurrence. Once you get on, it is hard to get off. That is because treatment options are more limited and even less effective for recurrent infection. When debilitating diarrhea returns, patients have told me that they feel like prisoners in their own home. And with every failed treatment, the recurrence of diarrhea can bring feelings of severe stress due to the trauma of recurrent infection, similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. The PTSD of C. diff is real because every facet of life is affected, including the ability to go to work, or go to school, or even take a short run to the grocery store. C. diff has tangible negative effects on physical and social functioning and emotional and mental health. Patients begin to feel a sense of despair when therapies fail yet again. So why do current therapies fail so many patients? Well, there's a two-part answer to this question. The first part of the story is related to the role of the microbiome in defense against C. diff. The second part of the story is related to the life cycle of C. diff itself. When I was in medical school, we learned that there was a sea of bacteria living in our GI tract, but we never thought about why these microbes were there or what they were doing. But decades later, we have now learned that this enormous community of beneficial bacteria called the microbiome give us a variety of health benefits. The microbiome provides helpful functions for our bodies, such as digestion of nutrients, shaping of our immune system, and most importantly for our discussion today, defense against C. diff. 
So the gut microbiome is our first line of defense against infection with this harmful bacterium. So you might ask, why isn't my microbiome protecting me as it should? Well, think back to when you first got your antibiotic for pneumonia or sinusitis or a urinary tract infection. That antibiotic was important to rid you of that nasty infection. However, antibiotics also kill a lot of beneficial bacteria, which are so important in protecting you from C. diff. So when your microbiome is disrupted by antibiotics, C. diff spores can enter your GI tract. C. diff spores are dormant, sleeping forms of the bacteria, which are found in the environment, in food, and in the soil. But just like a bed bug can hatch from an egg under the right conditions, C. diff bacteria can emerge from the spore and grow and replicate. However, the hatching of the C. diff spores only occurs when the microbiome is damaged. These active bacteria produce harmful toxins that attack the colon, leading to diarrhea. In fact, CDI can be thought of as the canary in the mine, signaling microbiome disruption and need for repair. That's why we consider C. diff infection a two-hit process. Not only does it require C. diff spores, but it also requires disruption of your gut microbiome. The other problem is that antibiotics are only half the answer for treatment of this infection. Many patients who are treated with antibiotics feel better and their diarrhea transiently goes away, giving them the false hope that the infection is gone. That is because C. diff antibiotics, like vancomycin or fidaxomycin, are great at killing the bacteria that produce the harmful toxin that causes the disease. But in too many patients, symptoms recur. Why? Antibiotics have no effect on those sleeping spores, which turn into harmful bacteria when the microbiome is disrupted. So symptoms persist and recur and that's because the infection persists and starting the whole vicious cycle over and over again. So C. diff antibiotics are necessarily, but only half the answer. We need a two-pronged treatment approach, including microbiome repair, to achieve a durable clinical response. So you may ask, is it possible to repair the microbiome? And the answer is a resounding yes. Through the use of beneficial spores called firmicutes, which live in our healthy microbiome. And that brings me to SEER 19, an investigational microbiome drug designed to break the cycle of C. diff recurrence. We have strong scientific basis for this choice of firmicute spores. 
Firmicutes have very important functions in protecting us against C. diff. In animal studies, firmicute spores reduce the risk of C. diff recurrence. Relative to safety, we have observed a favorable safety profile of C109 in all our clinical studies, which you might expect since firmicute spores normally live in the healthy microbiome. We also have convenient oral dosing, since SEER 109 treatment requires four capsules for three consecutive days. And due to the great unmet need, we were granted breakthrough therapy and orphan drug status by the FDA, a special recognition of the importance of finding a drug for this terrible disease. We have been talking a lot about the harmful spores of C. diff, but as, as you've already heard, there are a lot of beneficial spores that live in the healthy microbiome that are key to host defense against bacterial invaders. Over the several years of research at Ceres Therapeutics, we figured out which beneficial microbes are missing from patients with C. diff. We then learned how to harvest those beneficial spores in our laboratories. Another word about safety. You may have heard in the news about patients who developed severe infections that led to hospitalization and even death after fecal transplant. This can occur if pathogens like bacteria or viruses are not detected in stool of screen donors. We do a comprehensive screening of our donors for SEER 109, and our manufacturing processes offer a distinct advantage over FMT or investigational FMT drug products. We inactivate a broad variety of potential harmful pathogens through our complex manufacturing processes that lead to purified firmicute spores. This reduces the risk of transmitting infections to patients. As an infectious disease doctor, I feel that this is probably the most important characteristic of SEER 109. Now, it is my pleasure to present to you the top-line results of our Ecospore 3 trial. This was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, which is considered the highest quality of study designs for investigational treatments. This type of study gives physicians and patients confidence in the results. Here is the study population that was enrolled. Adults with an episode of C. diff infection, as defined by three or more unformed stools a day, for two consecutive days, plus a positive C. diff toxin test, and a response to antibiotics. Other criteria included three or more episodes of C. diff within the prior 12 months. 281 patients were screened, and 182 patients with recent recurrent C. diff received antibiotics for their CDI and were then randomized to either SEER 109 or placebo. 
A placebo is like a sugar pill that is used as the comparator to the real treatment intervention. The patient and the investigators were blinded to which pills were the placebo and which ones were C109. Placebo-controlled trials are considered the highest quality trial to determine the safety and efficacy of a new investigational drug. The patients were followed for eight weeks for any recurrence and were followed for 24 weeks for safety. Who took part in the study? As you can see in the last column, more than half of the patients were over 65 years of age. About 60% were female, and about three-quarters of the patients were taking vancomycin before study entry. 60% had a history of two prior episodes, which meant that they were entering with their third active infection. Thus, 40% had a history of even more episodes, which meant that they were entering with their third active infection, which speaks to the unmet need. And now it is my pleasure to present the phase three results. We found that our investigational drug, SEER-109, was very effective compared to placebo in reducing CDI recurrence. Recurrence rates were reduced from 41.3% in the placebo recipients to 11.1% in the SEER-109 recipients, a 73% reduction in risk. Another way of looking at the efficacy is to look at those patients who did not have a recurrence on SEER-109, what we call a sustained clinical response. 88.9% reached that favorable outcome. And we recently unveiled these results at a major medical conference as a late-breaker presentation, the type of designation given to data that are recognized to be of importance to physicians and patients alike. And you may also want to know, was SEER-109 effective in seniors as well as younger patients in Ecospore 3? Yes, in the Phase 3 study, SEER-109 effectively reduced recurrence of CDI in patients less than 65 years and greater than 65 years, as shown in this figure. In Ecospore 3, SEER-109 had a very favorable safety profile. When we look at all the side effects in our trial, more than 90% of patients had an adverse event, whether you were taking SEER-109 or taking placebo. This likely represents how poorly these patients felt with their C. diff infection, since it's happened equally in both the placebo and the 109 treatment arms. We observed serious adverse events in 7.8% in the SEER-109 group versus 16.3% in the placebo group, but none of the serious adverse events were thought to be related to drug by either by the investigators who were blinded to the treatment that the patient was taking. So in summary, 
CDI recurs when the microbiome is disrupted. A sustained clinical response requires a two-pronged treatment approach to reduce recurrence, antibiotics to kill the toxin-producing bacteria, and microbiome recovery to defend against C. diff spores. The observed safety profile for SEER 109 was favorable, selecting the essential bacteria needed to repair the microbiome helps reduce the risk of transmitting any unwanted microbes. And we have demonstrated that this investigational drug is effective in reducing CDI recurrence. So in conclusion, SEER 109 seeks to offer a promising new treatment model for patients with recurrent CDI. Requirements to file C109 for drug approval are under discussion with the FDA. An open-label trial for patients with their first or multiple recurrence of CDI has been initiated. No placebo will be in this, uh, in this open trial. All patients will have access to C109. If you or a member of your family are interested in possibly participating in the open-label study, please visit our website, seriestherapeutics.com or seriescdipstudy.com for more information. And series is spelled S-E-R-E-S. You may also contact the email clinicalstudies at seriestherapeutics.com to be connected with a member of our series team so that we may refer you to the nearest participating clinical trial center, clinical studies at seriestherapeutics.com. Finally, on behalf of all the staff at Series Therapeutics, I want to thank all the investigators and the patients who participated in this landmark trial, which demonstrated that a microbiome therapeutic drug following antibiotics can help achieve resolution of CDI. We could not have reached this important milestone for this trial without the dedication of our investigators and the clinical research personnel. But most importantly, we are humbled by the hundreds of patients who have participated in our trials from the early days of the phase one studies until today. You put your trust in us, and we are forever grateful. Finally, many thanks to Nancy Corrala for giving us the opportunity to speak to you today and for her continuing outstanding dedication to the patients and families of the CDF Foundation. Thank you so much. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. 
we thank Series Therapeutics for being the sponsor of the Patient and Family C. diff Symposium. Series Therapeutics has reported positive top-line results from the Pivotal Phase 3 Ecospore 3 study evaluating its investigational oral microbiome therapeutic SER109 for recurrent C. difficile infection. To learn more about Series Therapeutics, please visit their website at seriestherapeutics.com. That's S-E-R-E-S therapeutics.com. We're going to now shift gears. I'm going to give a overview of, of C. diff infection in general and kind of give a teaser for what we're going to see throughout the conference. And we're going to start with the epidemiology of the infection. And epidemiology is the study of how an infection impacts a society or a group of individuals. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention back in 2013 and then again in 2019 reinforced that the threat level for C. difficile is urgent. What does that mean? That means that this is a big threat to our society in general. In fact, they estimate that 12,800 people died from C. difficile in 2017 and over one billion, that's with a B, billion dollars are estimated to be attributable healthcare costs to C. difficile infection. So how many people do get this infection? It's quite a few. This is some data that was presented last year in manuscript form. Looked at something called the Emerging Infections Program through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Within this program, they look at 10 counties throughout the United States, and they project or estimate the number of infections that we see on a national scale based upon that. Within the study, they looked at 2011 and 2017. In 2011, it was estimated that 476,400 people in the United States were diagnosed with C. diff. In 2017, 365,200 people. So overall, we're actually doing pretty well. We've cut down significantly on the number of individuals who are getting diagnosed with C. difficile, about 25%. So the question that you're probably asking yourself is, why? How have we done this? I point your attention to the gray and the white bar graphs that accompany each time frame. And this is the differentiation between healthcare-associated infection, any infection that has an onset of symptoms greater than 72 hours after admission to the hospital or within 90 days of discharge from the hospital, basically any infection that's believed to be acquired within the healthcare system, versus community-associated infection everything else. And we see in 2011, the breakdown was about two-thirds of patients were coming from the healthcare-associated infection group and one-third from the community-associated infection group. Fast forward to 2017, it's about 50-50. So how did we get here? We got here through a number of different tools that we've used, more aggressive treatment, better infection control, Better antimicrobial stewardship, meaning are we using other antibiotics in appropriate ways with appropriate indications and fixed timeframes, and also better transitions of care from the inpatient setting to the outpatient setting, all topics that we're going to be learning about as we go through the conference today. Overall, though, it's really important to know that healthcare-associated infections 
are more significant and are associated with worsened outcomes compared with community-associated infections. And I'll point your attention to the 2017 data because this is the most relevant to us today. In 2017, the recurrence rates in the community was 12.8% versus 15.3% in healthcare-associated infection. Mortality was 2.2% in the community, 7.1% with healthcare-associated infection. So trends for more severe disease with healthcare-associated infection. Another trend that we're seeing is that more patients are getting more refractory disease. This is a study that was presented a couple of years ago now, in 2017. It looked at a cross-section of our population from 2001 to 2012, and it showed that the incidence or the number of new infections we saw on an annual basis, that increased 42.7%. However, the incidence of multiply recurrence C. difficile, meaning recurrence after recurrence after recurrence, that increased 188.8%. So we're seeing overall an increase in the incidence of the increase in number of the cases, but of those cases, it was also much more challenging to treat these patients. So what is C. diff and how does C. diff infect us? C. difficile is a gram-positive, meaning it stains positively with something called a gram stain, spore-forming, which we'll talk about in the next slide, anaerobic, it thrives in an environment without oxygen, rod which is the shape of this bacteria. And there are two main phases of C. difficile infection, the spore phase and the vegetative phase. The vegetative phase is the phase that most patients and their families think about when they think about C. diff, because this is the phase that releases two toxins, toxin A and toxin B, that stimulate the diarrheal syndrome most commonly associated with C. diff. These toxins are released by the vegetative phase and act on the lining of the bowel causing chemical changes that result in the symptomatology. The vegetative phase is susceptible to gastric acid and it's susceptible to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Plainly stated, if it comes in contact with these things, it gets wiped out. So if we were to swallow the vegetative form, our gastric acid, if it's intact, will sterilize this. Alternatively, the spore phase is a much more resistant phase. The spore phase is resistant to gastric acid and resistant to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. This phase is like a cocoon protecting the C. difficile in other environments so that it can get transmitted from one person to the next. In fact, the spore phase can last on dry surfaces on the order of six or more months and remain viable. So how does this infection actually infect us? What typically happens is we swallow the spore phase, as I just mentioned, to get through our gastric acid and gets into our small bowel. In our small bowel, there's a conversion from the spore phase to the vegetative phase that's called germination. The vegetative phase multiplies, divides, and multiplies some more as it builds an army heading towards the colon. But the colon is a very smart organ because the colon has its own defense system independent of the bloodborne defense system that protects it. Dr. McGovern alluded to it, that's the microbiota or the microbiome, or also referred to as colonization resistance. What classically alters this or weakens the colonization resistance? Antibiotics, amoxicillin, ampicillin, clarithromycin, fluoroquinolones, and cephalosporins are the most common. 
If we have an alteration of that colonization resistance and the presence of C. difficile vegetative form, this is the perfect mixture for C. difficile to proliferate, multiply and divide and multiply some more, then it releases those toxins and causes the symptoms you see on your screen. Most commonly diarrhea, but patients can present with constipation, ileus, and sometimes even something called a megacolon, where the colon slowly dilates, and if there isn't a surgical intervention or another intervention very rapidly, the colon can actually rupture, resulting in much more dangerous things. So we've already heard from Dr. McGovern, and you've heard from me about the importance of colonization resistance or the microbiome. Let's focus a little bit more on this. And when we talk about the microbiome, frequently when we talk about fecal transplant, we talk about transferring stool from one person to the next. So what is stool? Stool is a mixture of a number of different things. It's water and so-called electrolytes. Electrolytes are sodium and potassium and chloride and bicarbonate. Our stool also includes digested products that we've eaten, fats and sugars and proteins, undigested food like fibrous matter, any ingested medications we have, and of course, the microorganisms that we've been alluding to on multiple occasions. So let's talk a little bit about some of the definitions of these terms. The microbiota and the microbiome are used interchangeably, but they're actually pretty different. The microbiota is a group of microorganisms that live in an established environment, such as the colon. The microbiome is the combined genetic material of all of those microorganisms. So when you break down all those microorganisms, what does the genetic material look like? That's the microbiome. Dysbiosis is any derangement or differentiation of the microbiome or microbiota from normal. When we think about the medical applications, though, of the microbiota, the metabolome is probably the most important. The metabolome looks at what the metabolic output is as a result of all of those microorganisms. If we think about it, all the microorganisms are living in this place and they're interacting with each other. What chemically is happening as a result of all this and how does it interact with the body? And of course, C. difficile is one of the best examples of how the metabolome interacts with the body because metabolically it acts to form colonization resistance and prevent proliferation of C. difficile, but if it gets altered, that colonization resistance gets weakened and C. difficile can proliferate. So what constitutes the intestinal microbiome? And there's a number of different living things or microorganisms. There's bacteria, archaea, fungi, viruses, and protozoa. So as we shift gears and think about who gets C. diff and why, I'll point this figure out to you and say that unfortunately all of us stand at the top of this figure. All of us have unfortunately been exposed to C. diff. But as I mentioned before, there needs to be two things that happen within our body for C. difficile to proliferate. One is we need to disrupt that microbiota, and two, we have to actually be exposed to the C. difficile. If we're just exposed to the C. difficile and our microbiota is healthy, we can end up on the left side of this figure with something called asymptomatic colonization. Essentially, the C. diff is living within our system but it's not producing toxins in sufficient supply to cause symptoms, and our system is able to hold this under control. If we have a disruption of the microbiota and acquisition of toxigenic C. difficile, that combination results in symptom onset or symptomatic C. diff infection. Who gets cured? 
patients who get treated for the C. difficile, meaning that they get an antimicrobial to suppress the C. diff, and those that are able to recover their microbiota, either with microbiota restoration therapy or fecal transplant, or on their own if they're able to replenish their microbiome. If they're not able to replenish their microbiome, that leaves them on the red side of this figure at the bottom right at risk for recurrence in the future. Who gets C. diff? I like to break these patients down or these characteristics down into demographics, exposures, and environment. From a demographic standpoint, age over 65, female gender, any form of immune compromise, including diabetes, HIV, chronic kidney disease, inflammatory bowel disease, anybody who's ever gotten C. difficile in the past. In terms of medications, antimicrobials, as we discussed, any acid suppression medications, such as proton pump inhibitors and histamine blockers, chemotherapeutic agents used to treat oncologic diagnoses, any environmental exposure, specifically individuals who spend significant amounts of time in the hospital or skilled nursing facilities. How do we diagnose C. diff? It's a very important question, and I refer down to the bottom of the slide, again reminding you that there's two phases, the spore phase and the vegetative phase. And the vegetative phase, when it's active, releases those toxins and stimulates the symptoms. So the most accurate test to diagnose C. diff would be one that detects not only the presence of the organism, but the presence of the organism that's releasing toxin. And the only test of the common tests that we have available listed here that detects the toxin is something called the enzymes immunoassay or toxin A and B enzyme immunoassays. But you'll notice when we rate the ability of this to detect, the sensitivity is low and the specificity is moderate, meaning it's a good test, but it's not a perfect test to diagnose C. diff. So we have to add something else to increase the likelihood of using this test to diagnose this. And that is something called the glutamate dehydrogenase assay most commonly. The GDH assay or glutamate dehydrogenase assay looks for an enzyme that's clostridoidus release. If both the GDH assay and the EIA assay are positive, the patient is diagnosed with C. difficile. If they're both negative, they're negative. If they're different, then we sometimes will go to the nucleic acid amplification test. These tests do not detect whether or not there is active infection. What they detect is the gene that codes for the protein to release the toxin. So it says whether the patient has a toxigenic form within them or not. And that PCR assay or nucleic acid amplification assay is used to differentiate if the EIA and the GDH are discordant or frequently it's used on its own as a solitary test. However, as I mentioned, if it's used as a solitary test or a test on its own, there is a tendency for it to overdiagnose C. difficile infection and that's the limitation of that test. So there are no perfect tests for C. difficile. So why does treating C. difficile elicit this response from so many providers? Well, the reason has to do with recurrence. Recurrence is a major problem. It is estimated that 25% of all patients with C. difficile that are treated with metronidazole and vancomycin for their initial episode will recur. 40% will go on to recur after that, and 50% will go on to recur after that. That escalator that Dr. McGovern showed us is being shown in a bar graph form here. What are the risk factors for occurrence? They mimic the risk factors for initial infection. 
So when we think about treatments of C. difficile, I think there's two main ways to think about it. We can either attack the bacteria with antibiotics, such as metronidazole, vancomycin, or fidaxomycin, or we can support our immune system, boosting and complementing our microbiota through fecal microbiota transplant or microbiota restoration therapy, or using a product called Bezlotuximab, which is a fully humanized monoclonal antibody designed to bind toxin B in a very specific manner. So as we move forward, we're going to hear a lot of the themes and topics that I have raised within this discussion. And it is now my distinct honor to introduce Dr. Sahil Khanna. Dr. Khanna is a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He has focused a good portion of his career on C. difficile and is a true scholar and expert on this infection. His topic that he's gonna be talking to us today is C. diff treatments and FMT overview. Dr. Khanna, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Pastat. It's my pleasure to be here today and I'm going to talk about treatment of C. diff, both in antibiotics and microbiota restoration. So in the next 15 minutes or so, we'll talk about the new treatment guidelines for C. diff infection. We'll talk about which patients should get fecal transplant or microbial restoration, how should we do that, what are the differences between microbial restoration and clinical practice from microbial restoration in clinical trials, and I'll go over some of the data at higher level from clinical trials that have been conducted in this space. So these are 2017 guidelines from the Infectious Disease Society of America, and there's a couple take-home points here that these guidelines do not recommend the use of metronidazole for an initial episode. So metronidazole should really not be used for C. diff infection as a standalone therapy. If you have a patient who gets C. diff infection, and if a provider prescribes metronidazole, the patient should question that and say, that's not the recommended treatment. The recommended treatment is either vancomycin or fidaxomycin. And there's going to be an update to these guidelines also, which may recommend fidaxomycin even or vancomycin, and more to come, to, more to come on that in the next few months. The other important part of this table here is the third row, which talks about the fulminant infection which is the infection if somebody is in the intensive care unit with C. diff infection. It happens, but it's rare. And in that case, you use high-dose vancomycin and high-dose metronidazole in the intravenous form to help these patients out. As Paul had mentioned, that a lot of people get the first recurrence. If you look at the fourth row in this table here, these guidelines have also changed, where you're now recommending a longer course of vancomycin, like a six to seven week course, or use fidaxomycin, but essentially not repeating what you did in the first infection. And then finally, when people have multiple episodes of C. diff infection, which is a smaller fraction of people who have C. diff, but it ends up being very devastating. And in that situation, I put that in bold here, course of vancomycin or fidaxomycin followed by fecal transplantation likely leads to the best success rates. So fecal transplantation or microbiota restoration, restoring the gut microbiome, how do we think about that when we have patients who get C. diff infection? So I'm going to start with a chart. Let's say if you have 100 people who get C. diff infection because they got an antibiotic and now have diarrhea and you test them with different tests and you find 100 people with C. diff infection. 
When you treat them with guideline-based therapy, about 70 to 80 of them will have a response and will not have a recurrence. But about 20 to 30 of those 100 people will have a recurrence, and if you test them, they'll probably have a positive test with the recurrence. But you can forget the ones who didn't have a recurrence. They'll go and live their life happily. Of the 20 to 30 now who have a first recurrence, if you treat them with antibiotics, between 10 and 18 of them will have a response and would not recur again. But about 8 to 15 of them will end up having another recurrence. And in that situation, you, treat, you can treat them with a longer vancomycin taper or fidaxomycin or rifaximin, but the treatment that works the best that are written in brown here is antibiotics followed by microbiota restoration or fecal transplantation. How do we do that? Initially, you have to treat the episode of C. diff infection with an antibiotic. So when you are actively having diarrhea, you give an antibiotic like vancomycin or fidaxomycin for 7 to 14 days or until you can do a fecal transplantation-like treatment. And then you stop the antibiotic for 24 to 72 hours. Remember that vancomycin is a broad-spectrum antibiotic killer. It also kills useful bacteria. It does not kill just C. diff infections. You have to have that out of your system before you give somebody useful bacteria back. And in that case, about of 100 people, between 8 and 15 are eligible to get fecal transplantation either clinically through a colonoscopy or perhaps by enrollment in a clinical trial of one of these novel therapies if available. So we've talked about this already, that fecal transplantation restores a disrupted gut microbiome and improves the diversity. Diversity meaning the numbers and the variety of the useful or good bacteria that live in our intestines. It's been shown that it's superior to placebo, meaning sugar pills, or courses of antibiotics such as vancomycin. And the success rates are between 85% or higher for observational studies and ranging from 55 to 90% in clinical trials. So how is it different from antibiotics? This is a, just a graph that shows that if you take antibiotics, just antibiotics for a third episode, your risk of C. diff coming back can be between 50 and 60%. And you compare that to the risk of C. diff coming back after a single microbiome restoration therapy, and data have shown it's about 16% and goes down to 8%. So that's the best kind of odds you can have in medicine where your risk of getting an infection back again is 60% and can drop down to less than 10%. There is some troubles with the clinical microbiota restoration or the fecal transplantations that we do in clinical practice. At this point, we do not have an existing approved product. FMT in itself is not an approved therapy by the FDA. However, the FDA allows us to do it after we discuss risks and benefits with patients. At this time, there is not a universal consensus on how do we recruit donors, how do we screen them, how do we prepare them, how is stool prepared and stored, how do patients are prepared, and how do you give the stool to the patient, is it a colonoscopy, is it an upper route, and how do you follow these patients up for side effects. So when there is a lot of heterogeneity, there is a beg for standardization. And how can we standardize this product, this process, because stool can be different from one person on a day-to-day -day basis. But you can standardize the process in terms of how do we screen the donors, how do we prepare them, how do you train people who are doing these procedures, and how do you follow the patients up. There are some guidance from the FDA and societies which are in evolution as they get more information on fecal transplantation, and several publications have been uh, out there in this space.
And then lastly, most importantly, if we are able to standardize the composition, meaning one pill is the same as the other pill on a day-to-day -day basis, then I think that's going to be uh, the next gold standard for microbiome restoration therapies. So let's talk about the standardized therapies. We've already heard about Series 109, but there are some others um, that are out in clinical practice and uh, in clinical trials, and I'll give you high-level data for an enema-based therapy and a few capsule-based therapies. So let's talk about enema-based therapies. This is RBX2660, which is donor stool. Donors are well-screened for any kind of infections or health risks. And about 50 grams, which is less than two ounces of stool, is diluted in about five ounces uh, of a liquid and is given in an enema form. This, these are data from a phase two trial where we compared two enemas to one enema to uh, two enema to two doses of placebo. And you can see here that the success rate from the placebo enema in the central in the center bar here was 46 percent from one animal 61 and two active, uh, and sorry, one animal 67 and two animals was 61%, suggesting that two animals work better than, one animal works better than placebo. And then a large phase three trial of several hundred patients has been completed comparing placebo to one enema, which has shown that one enema is better than placebo and we're still waiting on the numbers from that clinical trial to come out. So that therapy, this therapy is hopefully going to be part of clinical practice in the next 12 months or so. We've already heard about Series 109 or SCR 109 from Dr. McGowan's excellent presentation, so I won't go into the details of this, but this product has also similarly derived from donor stool from well-screened donors filled into capsules, so it's an oral administration rather than an enema, that's the difference. And it has completed phase one, phase two, and phase three studies. And phase three studies have shown that it works much better than giving somebody a placebo or a pill that doesn't have active ingredients. Similarly, another oral formulation called CP101 by Finch Therapeutics has completed a phase two trial in patients who've had m multiple episodes of C. diff infection. And this study showed that the active product was 74.5% effective compared to placebo 61%. Again, significant difference, clinically meaningful, suggesting that there are going to be multiple options for C. diff infection for microbiome restoration going down in the future. And then finally, we also have another oral capsule, RBX7455, which has completed an initial phase study this is different from other uh, available oral capsules in the form of that it can be stored at room temperature rather than storing it in a freezer. And this study did not have anybody who got placebo, but everybody got the active drug, and it was 90% efficacious in, in 30 patients. So a smaller study and more to come on that. And then finally, we talked about can you actually put exact same amount of bacteria in every capsule and know that every capsule has been designed the same way? And do we have to depend on donor stool or can this be done all synthetically? So this is V303 by Vedanta Biosciences where 
they manufacture bacteria in a lab, so it's not dependent on, on donors' tools. And initial studies from this comparing this V303 to a pill that doesn't have V303 or a sugar pill or placebo are being conducted at this time, and results hopefully should be available this year. So in summary, the treatment guidance for C. diff infection is evolving. Metronidazole or flagyl is no longer the first-line therapy. There will be some changes to these guidelines in the next few months where we will likely see fidaxomycin being recommended as the first-line therapy, even over vancomycin. If somebody gets C. diff the second time, you use a longer vancomycin course. Fidaxomycin works better than vancomycin because it has fewer recurrences. And if somebody has three or more episodes of C. diff infection, that's when you start thinking about microbiota restoration in the form of fecal transplantation or a clinical trial. Cure rates can be up to 90% with one or more therapies. Fecal transplantation in clinical practice is vastly heterogeneous, and clinical trials give you a better sense of how this therapy works. And we have seen that standardized microbiota restoration therapies are showing promise. So what do the next 12 months look like? I think we're going to get some updated guidelines from the infectious disease societies. We're going to see more data from uh, the capsule form CP101 and perhaps a larger phase three trial. We'll also see a larger trial for the room temperature stable capsule RBX9455. And then we'll probably get results from, final results from VE303, which is the defined microbial consortia where you exactly know what's in the capsule. I think we will get the scientific publications from the two drugs that have now completed phase three trials. These are the two uh, RBX2660 and Series 109 that are furthest along in development, and I'm hoping that one or both of them would be getting FDA approval in 2021. And then finally, uh, the FDA guidance on FMT or fecal transplantation will continue to evolve, and we think that approved products, the ones that are listed on this slide, will likely replace traditional FMT in most patients and have ease of administration. And I'll stop here and hand it back over to Dr. Forrestad. Thank you, Dr. Khanna, for that wonderful overview on the treatment of this uh, challenging infection. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.